Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, October 25th, 2018, the Crown Prince and Bonesaw edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Uh, I'm joined as usual by my co-host Scott Lucas, who's a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Heads just above water, so I guess we have to say that's a, a fair result for today so far. Yeah, well, you're, you're doing better than me. Uh, long-time listeners will be aware that I broke my arm quite badly um, uh, four and a half weeks ago now. Still nurturing that, but uh, painkiller-assisted, pressing on with the incisive and enthusiastic analysis you've come to expect from us. Who knows, maybe the quality of which is improved markedly by the fact that I'm on a, a cocodamol diet uh, these days to get by. Um, Anyway, on the subject of grievous physical injuries, um, today's topic, Jamal Khashoggi uh, was a Saudi journalist and columnist for the Washington Post who had relocated to the United States in recent years because he feared reprisals for his criticism of the illiberal tendencies of Mohammed bin Salman, the powerful 33-year-old crown prince of Saudi Arabia. I say was because on October the 2nd, he visited the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to get documents related to his planned marriage to a Turkish citizen and never came out. Uh, a torrent of leaks from the Turkish security services, who seem to have had the consulate under close surveillance, revealed that Khashoggi was killed shortly after his arrival and in a grisly manner. Uh, apparently the Saudis had deployed a full team of security state operatives to Turkey to carry out the hit, including members of MBS's security detail, a doctor equipped with a bone saw, which was one of the more um, vivid vignettes uh, in the situation, and a body double who wore the dead man's clothes around town in the hours after his murder, apparently in an effort to facilitate the fiction uh, unsuccessfully in the event that he had left the consulate alive and well. Uh, in the days after the murder, the Saudi government moved through a sequence of retreating cover stories. First, that they had no knowledge of his whereabouts. Then that he had been killed by accident after a spontaneous fist fight. Then that he had been assassinated in a rogue intelligence operation without the crown prince's knowledge. Meanwhile, the Turks piled on the diplomatic pain, determined to upend every Saudi lie with evidence, culminating in a public accusation of murder this week from President Erdogan himself of Turkey. Uh, in the United States, meanwhile, rage in Congress and the press was swift and bipartisan, but President Trump stalled for time for what many considered an unseemly period, um, hoping to avoid, if at all possible, the need to confront a Saudi leader in whom the administration has invested a lot of faith as a pillar of its Middle Eastern policy, which centers on hostility towards Iran. Many naturally also wondered if Trump was also personally rather less fussed than other American presidents might be about the idea of an authoritarian ruler using violence against a critic in the press. So a lot going on there, uh, but it's been quite the story uh, and certainly one that's hung around an awful lot longer than I suspect that many of those involved in its uh, in its origins would have expected or hoped that it would do. So Scott, you've been following it in some detail, as have I. Where are we now in terms of what has been actually admitted? We've all had a fairly clear idea, we think, from day one that the Saudis killed this guy. But they have certainly not been missing any uh, exploratory opportunity to find a way around admitting that. Where have we got to? Where we are now is that the the Saudi monarchy, uh, specifically Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, in one sense are at their last line of defense, and that is the Saudi, as it were, prosecuting authorities have said, okay, well, we've done our investigation or we believe from preliminary investigation that this was in fact a premeditated uh, murder, and effectively an assassination of Shema Hasoji, which is completely different, of course, from what they said at the outset, which is the guy left the embassy. What's it to do with us? Now that it's been said that it's a murder, the gap is, oh, but Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, well, of course, he didn't know about it, nor did King Salman. That plausible deniability which is something that uh, folks out there might know is a long-standing concept for many governments and their intelligence services, which is whatever the dark operations that you do, you protect your president or your prime minister, or in this case, your crown prince. Right. You want it to be possible, like even if people who are in the know 
basically think they know like what's gone on, they can't nail the originator of the plot with sufficient um, definiteness that it's completely wrapped up. So you can always find some wiggle room to say, well, I suppose you know, there is just about a reasonable sliver of a doubt around whether or not this was ordered directly by the people at the top. Exactly. So that's the one side of it, is that the investigation propelled by the Turks primarily is at the point where we have the admission uh, of a killing. We still don't have a Soji's body, which the Turks are still trying to find. They think they know where it is. They think it's in mm-hmm. a well on the property of the Saudi consulate in Ankara, but they're, or Istanbul, but they're not being allowed to uh, explore for that. The Saudis are sort of mm. still trying to fend that off. And, and part of how the, just to say, the, the part of why the Turks seemed to be so confident from the very beginning that they knew what had happened seems to be some mixture of that they had people within the Saudi embassy who were willing to like inform their intelligence services about things that went on and also they seem to have had audio recording coming from inside the building leading to the fact that um no one that the, the it hasn't been publicly released yet but there's been a lot of statements and reports to the effect that an audio recording of this killing exists headlines today suggest that the the United States director of the Central Intelligence Agency has now heard this recording so if we take that to be true, it's pretty unambiguous. Uh, like the, 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 the Turks uh, have not been, you know, passing fine probabilities in working out what they think has happened here. They knew immediately and very definitely. Yes, and they've been releasing the information stage by stage as they get it. So that's on one side because you say, okay, fine, we're at the point where it would appear there's pressure on the crown prince and he's just trying to maintain that plausible deniability to avoid it. But the other side of the issue is that rather than just sitting still, the crown prince is going on the offensive in the sense, as we saw on Wednesday at the Future Investment Initiative, this high-profile economic conference about investing in his Vision 2030 program to diversify the Saudi economy. But it turns into an event where when he is asked about Hasoji's death, he turns it around to say, Oh, well, of course, you know, it's a terrible event. It has nothing to do with me. But not only says that, then proclaims, in fact, look, we can move on from this. You know, because sitting next to him in this bizarre scene in Riyadh is the Lebanese prime minister, Saad al-Hariri, who was effectively kidnapped by the crown prince's people several months ago in a power play to try to curb him Mm. in Lebanon. And he's sitting there now, best friends with MBS. They're holding hands. They're laughing about this, Mm. accompanied by one of the Bahraini monarchy. And the message which is coming out for Saudi is, okay, guy's dead. Let's move on. And I, I emphasize this because this second half of what we're dealing with is something we don't hear about as much in the Western media, which is that the Saudis have support from much of the Arab world that the Egyptians, the Jordanians, Hariri and Lebanon, some of the Gulf states have said, we support the Saudi monarchy, we support their line on this, they have been critical of Turkey for pressing the case, and as long as Mohammed bin Salman thinks he has that base of support there, far from being isolated, the Saudis are going to keep pushing back on this and hope that in one, two, three weeks, everybody will think, oh, it's really time to bring this to an end. Right. So, I mean, to put this in, in, in wider context for the benefit of, uh, of, of listeners who may not already have it, um, and you can go back, incidentally, and hear a previous episode of Political Worldview where we talk about Mohammed bin Salman and uh, uh, his coming to power and what exactly that means. But to restate some of that briefly, the Saudi Arabian state has been governed since its foundation by the House of Saud, this monarchical family, uh, of which the second generation is currently in the monarchy. And for some time, there's been a kind of handing down of power through a sequence of brothers, all elderly in that second generation, with one brother who's king, usually having another brother very slightly younger, who is the crown prince, uh, usually slightly healthier, usually more operationally in charge, who is who is then the 
the heir apparent, but when they take over, they're also like an old dude. Um, whereas with MBS, the sudden paradigm shift has been that he's 33 now. He was younger when he was designated as crown prince. He is effectively um, leapfrogged into the position of being both most powerful operational figure in governing Saudi Arabia today and also the heir to the throne in a radical shakeup of, uh, of, of the line of succession. And he has sold himself domestically and overseas as a force for bracing change in terms of Saudi Arabia. He's got a plan for radical reform of the economy to deal with the fact that in the long term, selling oil on the international market is not going to be sufficient to keep a desert country going. Um, He's also tried to reinvigorate the idea of Saudi Arabia as like a decisive, active, potentially even um, hegemonically leadership-grabbing presence in the in the Middle East. Uh, as a result, he's been cutting this rather dashing figure on the international stage, uh, you know, going to lots of bilateral meetings, going to lots of conferences, trying to sell a lot of people on the idea that if you thought Saudi Arabia was a, a sleepy, backward sort of place, the good news is that this guy is here to, to shake all that up and build a bright new future. And and that's been associated with some liberalizing type things, like, for example, the longstanding notorious prohibition on women being able to drive Mm. in Saudi Arabia has been lifted. That gets mentioned a lot and perhaps has been somewhat oversold. But in parallel to being determined to make these um, bold changes, uh, and perhaps related to them, because in order to make these changes, he needs to have quite decisive authority, uh, he has been really strikingly centralizing and concentrating authority in his own hands. This monarchy used to be governed by a kind of coalition of barons, I guess you might say, within the within the royal family, various princes who divided power up between different areas of the state in, in, in ministries between them. And he uh, has seized almost all of that power in his own hands through a, a series of what some might characterize as rather reckless moves. Um, he uh, assembled a variety of wealthy, powerful figures within within Saudi society, within a posh hotel in Riyadh, uh, and detained them there for an extended period of time. Many of those people were apparently, um, at the very least, roughed up, possibly tortured, had lots, had some of their a significant amount of their assets expropriated, had to pledge their fealty to him. He's imprisoned a whole raft of uh, people who are, from his perspective, too independent-minded in civil society, including, ironically some of the activists who were lobbying for women's right to drive, uh, the, the, this, this uh, uh, concession that in policy terms he has made. And internationally, he's, as, as you mentioned before, he had the president of Lebanon to visit and then did not let him leave, uh, apparently slapped him around a bit, uh, wouldn't let him go home for an, for an extended period. So he, he's this complicated figure in that on the one hand, he's a dashing young forward-looking reformist, but on the other hand, he's unnerved an awful lot of people with his apparently quite unabashed uh, authoritarian instincts in terms of his own entitlement to unlimited and unchecked power. Yeah, with respect, I mean, for, for me, it's not that complicated. And that is, you start with someone who is trying not only to rise to power, but to consolidate that power where he is beyond challenge. You know, whatever he does with it, if he happens to let women drive or if he opens the first cinemas in Saudi Arabia, that politically, socially, and economically, he has to be, as it were, secured. And that means that domestically, the policy of detaining hundreds of people, even if it's detention in a Ritz-Carlton hotel, including some of the richest men in the world, such as Prince Walid, then fair enough, that's what he will do sidelining uh, his rival, the Minister of Interior, Mohammed bin Nayef, and keeping him under house arrest, uh, which he did very soon after ascending to becoming Crown Prince. And the reason why it's significant for me is breaking rules. There was a behavior within the royal family, within Saudi society, which is, okay, there were always rivalries maneuvering for power, but there were certain lines you don't cross. For example, jailing other members of the family. But what he succeeded in doing is, is giving members of the monarchy a choice, which is either you rely upon me for patronage. So some of the elder generation have their own children who they would like to be in positions of influence. And MBS is the person who can grant favors. Or 
if you alienate him, then he will invoke the state security forces against you. He broke the rules this time with the Soji. This is why this is catalytic, because up until a few days ago, I still held out and thought, okay, maybe this is an abduction gone wrong. Because from a couple of very well-placed people with whom I could chat, they said, look, in Saudi Arabia, we have kidnapped, we have brought people back from abroad in the past. We've done that occasion. We've never killed anybody. We never killed anybody within one of the diplomatic missions. And I don't think these folks were shining me. I think that's honestly the way that they knew the system had operated. It's changed now. That MBS, if he did this, if he in effect said either Hasoji returns to Saudi Arabia, if he doesn't choose to return, that's it, get rid of him, he's crossed a line. But what I think people may not appreciate outside of Saudi Arabia is, is that this is not costing him domestic support from what we can see. That because so many people within the monarchy and within the elite are now reliant on his favor, they're not crossing him, and there is no groundswell of public opinion against him. Indeed, the opposite. That a lot of people are coming out in support of MBS because they feel he's being victimized by, for example, by Turkey, uh, or indeed by a rival Gulf kingdom such as Qatar and poor Mohammed bin Salman, why he should be so, so uh, disrespected because a man named Jamal Hasoji had the temerity to wind up dead in Istanbul. Right. I mean, it. if we're going to think about the logic of why the crown prince would decide to do something like this. It seems to me there are two there are two assumptions that have probably been made here that have that have proven to be unwise. One is that it would be it would prove to be easier to maintain some kind of haziness at least for longer around the facts of exactly what what happened here that um one of the things that's striking about this situation is that the Turks knew everything from the beginning, and not only did they know it, but they've been inc- they've been disposed to really put the Saudis trash out in the street. So they said that uh, um, that he left the embassy. They released the CTCTV that shows that he never left the embassy. Um, they say that uh, he was not harmed. They start talking about a recording in which it's very clear that he was that that he was harmed. Uh, they say that it wasn't premeditated, and they reveal footage of like a body double who was obviously brought into the country precisely to impersonate him, not some. Something one would expect that you would like need to do unless you had some malign plan for them, etc. So one miscalculation seems to have been that it was not foreseen that the Turks would have either the capacity or the intent to so determinedly undercut the Saudis' cover story at every stage of this operation. Secondly, what seems to have been misjudged is that if the facts de facto were to become widely known, there would be this kind of strength of reaction to it. You know, I, I, I've i never been the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. I don't know exactly, like, what that life is like or what norms constrain it, but I'm going to guess that it probably puts you in a milieu where the occasional person dies and it's kind of your doing, but basically you suffer no consequences from that. And so, like, there's probably some line you've got to learn like the location of between the people who you can have killed and the people without like without any comeback and like the people who you can't and maybe because this guy was a Saudi, even though he was overseas, and maybe because Turkey's a bit closer to Saudi Arabia than the United States is, where like he was he was otherwise living. Um, uh, and maybe because Donald Trump is president, who knows? Uh, and and also possibly because, uh, as has been noted by some uh, of the more left-leaning critics, because the uh, Saudi government has gotten away with waging a really quite brutal military campaign, killing a lot of civilians in Yemen for some time without apparent moral outrage on the part of at least governments in the West. He 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 seems MBS. This is to have perhaps assumed he had a license to assassinate journalists that it turns out on reflection he had not in fact secured the purchase of. So 
you know, the um, the Washington Post, which was uh, Khashoggi's employer, uh, obviously was inflamed with outrage. But more than that, uh, members of the U.S. Senate, Lindsey Graham, for example, most recently discussed red in the face and screaming about the, uh, the martyrdom of Brett Kavanaugh during Supreme Court uh, nominations in our last episode. Uh, discovered similar levels of anger to say that he had never felt so used in all of his life as he had by by Mohammed bin uh, Salman, who had uh, used him as his in into Washington society, apparently during one of his recent glad-handing tours. Uh, various other uh, members of the Washington foreign policy attentive elite have expressed a fairly uninhibited and unabashed anger. And even Donald Trump, um, you know, in that can't quite keep the story straight way that we associate with him has perceptively been bullied and shoved towards at least having to say this thing is not okay. He seems to resent it primarily as a difficult PR situation and like a, an awkward position he's been put in, but he's had to to say that this is this is bad. So you feel like MBS was probably relying on the fact that even worst case scenario, if this came out, he could kind of go, yeah, we killed him. So what? What of it? Uh, and it would die down over over the course of a few days. And it really hasn't. So he needs this story that it wasn't him personally, even if it was Saudi operatives to stick, because if everybody has to look unambiguously and clearly at the fact that he personally made this happen. That's a big normative line people want to keep drawn, that you can't just kill journalists uh, when you feel like it. Also, that it would speak very badly to his judgment that he would have approved such a thing as this, thinking that it would not be a problem uh, when, in fact, it is a huge problem. Because if everyone's placing these these big blue-chip bets on the judgment of this man to be the leader of this important power in the Middle East for the next 50 years or whatever, having him be someone who uh, screws the pooch in, in, in this um, flamboyant manner is not uh, is not something that people can happily live with. I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, sometimes it's just the personal motives I that I think come into play. And I think had President Erdogan of Turkey not been so embarrassed at this killing being carried out blatantly, and technically it's Saudi soil, of course, because it's inside the consulate, but within Turkey, had he not been so embarrassed, in other words, had the Turks not actually said, not revealed the evidence, than if the crown prince ordered this killing, he gets away with it. Even now, the assessment that the crown prince will pay a price for it, well, what does that mean? Does that mean, in fact, that you'll get his father to replace him, King Salman? That's what the Turks are angling for, or at least for King Salman to contain MBS. Uh, but there's no evidence that will happen yet. Uh the Americans and European countries are moving towards sanctioning some of the Saudis that were involved in the killing. But, of course, that doesn't touch the crown prince. Uh, he's had to move one of his close advisors, or one of the close advisors, the uh, uh, Salah Hatani, who organizes uh, Saudi cyber campaigns, has been shifted to another role. That's a fairly limited price to pay. Uh, we know that Jared Kushner, who is... Donald Trump's son-in-law, and who is the key person in contact with MBS, is saying we have to maintain the ties. We know that Donald Trump is not going to pull back on American arms sales. $110 billion announced last year. Right. Donald Trump, that was in his um, predictably gauche way, uh, one of the things that he came right out and said during one of his early public responses to this was that uh, he would be disinclined to allow the economic consequences of losing some arms deals. Um, uh, uh, he, he wouldn't want to see that even even to make what would seem to be the obvious point an American president would want to make, which is this is unacceptable behavior internationally. Yeah. And he, just to be, and I hate to be so callous about it, but as you've referred, given the Saudi intervention in the Yemeni civil war, which was MBS is doing, given that the Saudis have gotten away with that, with the killing of tens of thousands of people and with possible famine for millions uh, and suffered really no apparent cost to that, why should he not think that one journalist, only one journalist, uh, would be considered as a cause celebre? 
mm. to rank far greater than those many thousands, millions I of do. Yemeni like, lives. I, it, it's interesting, like that that in in this weird Basakwards way, like a um, a callous and um, somewhat callow authoritarian monarch in the Middle East has kind of found moral unity in a weird sort of way with the uh, the left-wing critics of the West in both like implicitly or explicitly echoing that point, which is to say, well, you know, if I can indiscriminately bomb civilian centers in Yemen, why should anyone give a damn that I kill this one guy who writes for the Washington Post? But of course, I feel like as a as a representative of like the the substantially populated middle ground between those two factions, like I could see very clearly why it's a much bigger deal to kill, um, especially in um, graphically reported and torturous circumstances, an American-based broadsheet columnist uh, in on the soil of a European NATO ally than it is to carry out a brutal intervention on the Arabian Peninsula because, you know. Without wanting to be crass about it, people just have already priced in the fact that horrible things happen to civilians in the Middle East as a result of brutal um, state decisions about war and peace all the time. They very much haven't priced in the idea that if you like live in Washington, D.C. and write nasty things about a political leader in the newspapers, you get your fingers cut off with a bone saw um, in, uh, in, in a consulate. So... It speaks to this issue of judgment again that, you know, albeit that I, I get the kind of, um, you know, Owen Jones, Glenn Greenwald talking point that, you know, of course, the Saudi monarchy would believe it can do whatever it wants because we don't seem to care about Yemen. I feel like it was very obvious why this would produce a bigger backlash than that. And the fact that he didn't see that unnerves me substantially about his, you know, who who is giving this man advice or if they are giving him the advice he should be getting, which is don't do that because it's going to be a really big problem for you. Like, is he not listening to the advice that he's getting? Don't underestimate the personal here. Don't underestimate the personal to me, which is that Jamal Hasoji, who, remember, is, is not a dissident. He's not from outside. I mean, he was from within the system. He was very much uh, the protege of Prince Turkey, the longtime head of Saudi intelligence services. And so he was a critic, but he wasn't like a burn the place down critic. He was. Yeah. No, he was just simply, look, I'm criticizing the fact that, that Saudi Arabia is becoming more centralizing, that it's becoming more authoritarian. Now, it's that type of critic which in some ways rankles more than the dissident, because the dissident is not one of you. But for one of you to come out and to criticize, then I think. It's often said quite well that, that the most violent attacks that you see that are carried out, such as dismembering bodies or attacks, is because the killer knows the victim and has a personal grudge against the victim. Mm-hmm. Think of it in that way here. So you make a judgment call and compare it to another case, which is we know that in Russia, a number of journalists have been killed mm. and a number of former members of the system have been killed under Vladimir Putin's watch. Now, Vladimir Putin has not paid a cost for those killings of those journalists or those political opponents. So MBS looks at that and thinks, hmm. why is anybody well, going to care well, about this? Well, well, I suppose like, he hasn't paid a cost except that like most of the Western world thinks that he's a murderous scumbag and he um, you know, has effectively burned his bridges as far as having healthy, productive relations with, with much of the West is concerned. Whereas Bin Salman's would seem to make a huge priority of the fact that he wants not just Donald Trump, who, you know, obviously is an easily playable idiot and and, and, uh, doesn't have normal ideas about human rights for for a U.S. president, but American civil society more broadly. Like, Mohammed bin Salman seemed to believe that he could have this, again, Washington-based broadsheet journalist savagely murdered and then... Not one month later, he could show up and like sh- glad hand people at a festival that he was throwing for the purposes of saying Saudi Arabia is uh, a haven for investment because we're modernizing and on the right side of history and have uh, none of the business leaders and or representatives of civil society uh, bat an eyelid at the fact that they would be tacitly endorsing this man by doing so. Now, a lot of them didn't show up for the event. I'm sure that 
when enough time has elapsed, they will probably be consulting their PR departments about whether like it, it's possible to sli- to sidle back in. I don't mm-hmm. doubt that the incentives kind of remain the same, but I I really do feel like he didn't. This has not turned out. Even if he thinks that he can ride this out ultimately. I don't think this played out how he would have expected it to. I, I agree with that. I mean, I agree. I don't think he played it out in terms of the reaction at Snowball. But again, I think I can get inside why he would have miscalculated. Look, here's the thing. President Erdogan in Turkey, who is pressing the case against Mohammed bin Salman. What's the number one country in terms of detention of journalists per capita? It's Turkey. Hmm. And Because after the coup a few years ago, they basically rolled up everybody that they could make a plausible or not even that plausible argument was uh, in some way an enemy of the state yeah, yeah, by which well, they mean him. And even before the coup. I mean, the fact is, under the Erdogan government going back 15 years, when Erdogan's been for prime minister, they've cracked down on journalists, detained them, as well as detaining members of other a- aspects of civil society. So, you know, MBS looks at that. So, okay, fine. You know, a few days of uproar because Saudi, fine. They'll, they'll move on to something else. And add to that, he's got the support of many in the Arab world. And he thinks the Trump administration has got his back. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not going to get conspiratorial because I don't think, you know, it's like Jared Kushner had a word in his ear and said, you know, you can bump this guy off. There's no problem. But I do think the fact that Jared Kushner sets a mood music, mm. which is we want these close ties with you. And Jared Kushner is coming from an administration that has no regard for journalists, that has no regard for opposition. Mm. Indeed, an administration led by someone who declares journalists to be the enemies of the people? Yeah, well, I mean, Paul Krugman on Twitter made that, um, you know, rather, uh, uh, I mean, partly facetious, partly, I think, quite quite accurate point that um, Donald Trump's been criticized for, like, not having the courage to stand up and say that, 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 that this behavior was evil and unacceptable. But actually, it isn't a matter of courage. It's that he actually probably on some level approves of this kind of thing. Like, do, do any of us doubt that in a world of totally unchecked authority to vent his own sentiments, Donald Trump would like be above? Or do, do we think he would be above roughing up or possibly harming journalists physically? You know, I, I, I certainly don't. Or just, just so people don't think Adam's going over the top, you know, 72 hours ago. In the midst of uh, all this uproar over Hasoji, Donald Trump stood in front of a rally in Montana and he laughed, joked about a Republican congressman who body slammed a reporter for The Guardian, uh, the British newspaper, last year, effectively a criminal assault. And the crowd laughed along with him. So, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I imagine Donald Trump would be quite squeamish if you cut a hand off with a bone saw in front of him. I don't think he's lived that kind of life. But what I mean is, I guess I don't think it would take him too long to to acclimate himself to, to that to that kind of world, which might might sound like an overstatement to some people. But I I think he's given us ample fuel to to conclude that about him. Adam, we're in a world and we'll bring it back to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the region in a second, but we're living in a wider world where you have a number of authoritarian leaders who it's not just a case of being authoritarian, you know, behind the scenes, behind closed doors. They're open about what they'll do. You talk about Duterte in the Philippines. Uh, you talk about the possibility of a Bolsonaro in Brazil. You talk about, again, uh, the Chinese leadership who have just detained the head of Interpol for goodness sake, right? The enforcers are now the ones who wind up in prison. You know, and so this type of behavior that we consider normal, it's not as much that I think MBS broke that code in the context of what others had done. It's just he hit the wrong guy. I mean, had, had Jamal Hasoji not written for the Washington Post, had he written for, say, let's say a, a magazine like The Nation in the United States, or had he written just for the Huffington Post, Hmm. Maybe not because it was the Washington Post and because he wrote for Middle Eastern publications hmm. that were considered to be challenging, critical of the Saudi regime. That's what gave this resonance. Right. He, he, both in Turkey and in the United States, there seemed to have been more people who really felt they had a stake in what happened to Jamal Khashoggi than perhaps to other people. It does also... Um, on the subject of calculations and miscalculations, people have been criticizing the Trump administration for placing a rather excessively large bet on um, MBS and on, on, on the Saudi alliance. But I wonder if like the, the converse isn't also true, that MBS 
if things go as he intends, is going to be around for a very long time. And if there's one thing any dispassionate analysis of the Trump administration would tell you, it's that there's there's a non-trivial possibility that the Trump administration is like a weird outlier event staffed by people who don't know what they're doing, which, whether replaced by a Democratic or a Republican administration, is going to be remembered as like an incompetent, judgment-free mess. So, you know, the fact that Jared Kushner told you that something or implied that something is okay, or the fact that you think you can get away with doing something because Donald Trump is like corrupt and lacks a conscience, seems like an awfully thin read on which to build a vision of how your relationship with the United States is going to work going forward. And I, while I don't doubt that with like a great deal of legwork, um, and they certainly got enough money to throw at the problem. The Saudis can try and get this relationship back on track. If this was largely premised on the assumption that this administration would be unusually inclined to let it go, that again seems to me to, to show a rather blinkered view of what, of, of what matters on the part of the Saudis. I, I don't think it's a bad bet regarding the administration uh, because the other factor that comes in here is Iran. And that is because the Trump administration, and I'm not talking as much now about Trump and Kushner as much as, say, a national security advisor like John Bolton, or indeed the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, you know, they come in, they make this, they, they decide they're going to rip up the Iran nuclear deal eventually. They're going to go for regime change in Iran. Well, who's your major ally who's pitted against Iran in the Middle East? It's the Saudis. And so from the standpoint of working with the administration, I think MBS has got the idea, look, if they try to cross me, if they cut against me, they no longer have the partner to do what they want to do with Iran against the region. Mm. Where I think there's a miscalculation, what you're driving at, or at least a lack of thinking this through, is it's with Congress. And that is, well, actually, it's twofold. One is it's, it's underestimating the number of legislators who would be discomfited by this, given that some legislators still think not enough was done against the Saudis over 9-11. Mm-hmm. where 15 of the 19 hijackers were Right. The Congress has had a bee in its bonnet Absolutely. about the Saudis getting a free pass for bad behavior for quite some time. Exactly. So they, I don't think the Saudis consider that. And I don't think they considered something else, which is that although the administration, when you talk about a Trump, a Bolton, a Kushner are on their side, the agencies, the U.S. agencies, were put out by this because the CIA and the State Department knew very quickly, because they were in contact with the Turks, how blatant the deception was. And the U.S. agencies are not happy with Donald Trump and his inner circle. And mm-hmm. so that means they now are pitted against the president. So it was those types of as a more complex maneuvers in D.C. that the Saudis didn't take account of. And now they're going to mobilize all their lobbying people. Hmm. to try to contain whatever damage has been caused. Right, because they have a lot of money to throw to throw at these things. Billions. I mean, Matt Iglesias, who's, you know, what we might say, a sort of eclectic thinker um, with uh, with whom I often have some sympathy, wrote a piece about this, this question of the U.S.-Saudi uh, alliance recently, which I thought was quite persuasive, that said that... The framework through which a lot of analysis approaches this is that the United States has this enormous priority that is dealing with Iran. And no matter what the Saudis do, no matter how weird and terrible their domestic system is, and no matter how outlandish and um, outrageous their international behavior is, it's all got to be tolerated because we need the Saudis, the United States needs the Saudis to make sure that its Iran policy works. But that kind of has things backwards in many ways, in that especially in a world where the importance of oil resources is getting less important, at least from the United States perspective, by the year, really, like the Saudis have a big problem with Iran, a kind of potent nearby neighbor with whom it has profound uh, political and cultural differences and a long-standing rivalry. And the Saudis really need a close alliance with the United States in order to facilitate their capacity to maintain the multi-fronted um, strategy of full confrontation that they've been running. But like when you step back and look at who's doing what exactly, you know, the Saudis are carpet bombing civilians in a neighboring country, are funneling resources to 101 like 
ridiculously shady and extreme Islamist groups fighting in various conflicts throughout the region. They're now murdering and dismembering journalists on, on Western soil. And their domestic system is, if you were going to like measure it pound for pound, less democratic and liberal than the Iranians is. So who's to, 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 to borrow the phrase that Bill Clinton, uh, I believe, once used after his first meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, like who's the superpower here? Uh, and why is it that Saudi Arabia, um, what is the Jedi mind trick uh, that Saudi Arabia has pulled on a certain part of the American establishment that leads them to believe that rather than being a country with a bunch of regional grievances that desperately needs U.S. backing, Saudi Arabia is actually a desperately important linchpin that the United States needs to do absolutely anything and tolerate absolutely anything in order to keep on side. Well, I mean, you and I could you know, spend an entire lesson for hours about this. We could go back and talk for decades about the idea of the strategic pillar in the Middle East, and as misguided as that might be, you know, someone like Richard Nixon, who talked about Israel and Saudi, and Iran, ironically, before it fell, those three pillars that were there. You could talk about oil, and even if there's less dependence on oil for the U.S. than now, there still is some dependence, at least by the West, on oil supplies. But I think most importantly, the Trump administration was the Allah sent gift to the Saudi monarchy, and that is. Go back and replay early 2017. The United States does not name an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. They do not have a high-level State Department official involved. Donald Trump says, it's my son-in-law, my boy, that's going to make the connections. And indeed, those connections were being made with the Saudis and with the Gulf states before Trump took office, a wider part of the Trump-Russia story. Mm -hmm. Now, think about Trump going to Riyadh in May 2017, where the Saudis have not only said, we're going to buy $110 billion of arms, we're going to put a gold necklace around you. We are going to have billboards, your giant photo alongside King Solomon, lit up at night. And they're showing all of this to Trump because they, as well as other countries, know you flatter him, you got him in your pocket. Hmm. And that working relationship meant that when they went in and blockaded Qatar, their fellow Gulf Kingdom, even though the U.S. has a military base in Qatar, one of its largest in the world, the Trump administration is split initially. And Trump is actually saying, well, yeah, Qatar's got terrorists in it. They support terrorist groups. Even when Saudi Arabia goes in and continues that policy, which since it's done since 2015, of just leveling Yemen, Trump administration not only doesn't say anything about it, U.S. military actually is enabling that campaign mm -hmm. with supplies to the Saudis. So why should MBS think the killing of one journalist is going to make any difference when, in fact... They've been able to leverage Trump and his people mm. in a way. And that leverage has been redoubled because of the decision by the Trump administration this year, which is we're going to bring Iran to its knees. And to bring Iran to its knees, you've got to cover one million barrels of Iranian oil per day on the market. Where is that oil going to come from? Well, one of the leading suppliers, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, I guess this gets us into the, you know, um, the question which, as you said, probably deserves another podcast of why bringing Iran and only Iran to its knees is such an overriding priority. But again, perhaps that's one for the psychologists uh, at this point. But yeah, I think it seems to me in retrospect, um, and perhaps for many at the time, like it, it looks extremely clear to me, you know, you had a a Potemkin liberalizing uh, leader in MBS who purported to be moving this country, not just economically, but also socially, in the direction that people who um, purport to have liberal propensities in the United States would say they approved of. Um, and because there's so much money flowing out of, the, out, of the, out of Saudi Arabia to give to this and that, and potentially so much opportunity on the part of investors, and this long-standing strategic relationship that gives a lot of stakeholders vested interests too, there was a lot of will to believe that that was true. And if you squinted at it just the right way, and you downplayed stuff like kidnapping a prime minister from another country and beating him up, or locking up your relatives in hotels and torturing them, you could kind of make it work. And I feel like through this act and the way that it's played out, MBS has grievously set back the capacity of 
everyone who wanted to play along with that if you really look too closely at it, not terribly plausible narrative, he's grievously uh, hindered their capacity to do it, at least for the foreseeable future. So now we are going to have a conversation going forward about whether or not, because Saudi Arabia is just important enough in a variety of trade-offs, we've got to look past the fact that everything is terrible there and the guy who leads it is terrible, as opposed to the narrative that we had before, which is actually he's not that bad, and especially not when you compare him to the alternatives, and maybe a brave new future is possible if uh, if we row in behind this, you know, liberalizing in-context force for, like, Saudi Arabia. And that like that that is a non-trivial misstep from his point of view like he is going to be um He's going to be spending the next for the foreseeable future on the diplomatic stage with people saying yeah he's he's like a murdering autocrat but you know what are you going to do as opposed to saying uh yeah he's like his heart's in the right place but he's working within a difficult system and 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 that's um that's a pretty big change in the narrative that he that, that he's going to have to work with even if i'm sure uh you know it's good to be the king uh, or the crown prince indeed uh, regardless who cares i need to cl- uh, close this on a provocative note who cares um Almost any sensible person a few years ago when MBS came in would realize not only in the case of Saudi Arabia but throughout the region that you're talking about leaders who are trying to consolidate power and they're willing to curb political social rights to get power even while they might hand out so-called reforms on the other. About the only person who didn't notice this was probably the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman who just seems to have been deluded into thinking that Mohammed bin Salman was, uh, you know, the 21st century Muslim version of the Messiah mm-hmm. remaking the region. Uh, did, did he think that the um, the next six months will be crucial? You may be familiar with the concept of the, Fried, no, he, the Friedman he, unit uh, he, of time, which is cut, that in he, every column uh, about a complicated no, issue, that has that is his evergreen months, he, refrain. He, he cut the six months. He just scrapped six months. And when he was challenged on this, perhaps you're being you know, a bit deluded about MBS being this great magical person bringing in liberal rights across the region. He just cut six months out and just said F you to the audience in Aspen, Colorado, who laughed. Isn't that quite jolly what's happened here? fact of the matter is, whether you talk about General Sisi, now President Sisi in Egypt, you detain your opponents, you kill hundreds of them, you consolidate your power. You talk about President Erdogan in Turkey, you detain your opponents, you purge the military, you purge the courts, you purge the universities, you consolidate power. You talk about Bashar al-Assad in Syria, you get the right support, you can kill hundreds of thousands of your people and displace millions, and you're still in power, you don't pay a price for it. So the idea that leaders will be called to account for missteps through detentions and killings, I'm afraid it doesn't necessarily play out that way. Mm. And I'm not sure that MBS costed this in, but let me add one other thing. It is not just a question of MBS here. You see, alongside MBS, you're talking about the United Arab Emirates, who have a monarchy that have been alongside him every step of the way. They have been alongside him in the Yemeni intervention. They're alongside him in trying to blockade Qatar. They're alongside with him in terms of this power grab. And that means that this question of just this one man who pays a price in the end for his misdeeds doesn't end like an hour-long drama in this case. The region just is going a completely different way. And I think for all his shortcomings and possibly misjudging this, I, I think I think he not only holds on to power, I think he may do so strengthened paradoxically because of this. Mm. I mean, I, I guess I would add as one closing note that, you know, maybe in the International Relations Department, this gives us a, a, a reminder of the still lingering relevance of good old-fashioned sovereignty, which is to say that, sure, if you're the authoritarian strongman ruler of some country, you can get away with an enormous amount on your own soil. You can round them up by the thousand, lock them up, torture them, kill them even. But don't be luring people into your consulates on foreign soil and dismembering them. Don't be kidnapping people overseas. If you... If you murder someone on someone else's soil, even if they're your own citizen, then you best have 
had the foresight and politeness to make a phone call to the country that you did it in first, because otherwise they're going to be waving receipts around in public um, and putting your trash out in the street, as Turkey has done in in this case. And indeed, much as Russia has discovered, um, while you can get away with a great deal in your own country without very much comeback, if you go doing this kind of stuff in other people's countries, uh, you can expect pushback. Because frankly, if you're at the point where you're allowing people to get stone cold murdered on your territory by a foreign government well you know and you're not putting up any kind of resistance to that like are you still a sovereign country anymore and that's a that's a red line that i think even even countries that are willing to put up with a lot uh, get get a little um antsy about so i think if he has screwed up it's not so much the like the very idea that a journalist might be killed by a by a, a saudi monarchy that people are um twitching about it's the idea that you would do it in this ill thought through and highly discoverable way abroad that you would not realize that people are going to get really annoyed with you that you've done it on their soil um and that therefore this is Although it's a human rights and a free press outrage, it's also a diplomatic incident. And your ability to foresee diplomatic incidents and not have them escalate into something that requires your dad to uh, like bring himself back to the day job to the extent the King of Saudi Arabia has had to do to play cleanup on this is probably considered to be a, 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 like a, a requirement. So I think overwhelming likelihood is that Mohammed bin Salman um, rides this thing out, but I'd like to put down like a one or two percent um, hedge that says whereas he was cruising without question to uncomplicated total dominance, uh, I think he may have uh, he's opened up a tiny sliver of a possibility in my mind that maybe this is the beginning of an effort to think, hey, does this guy actually have the soundness of judgment required for the amount of power we're concentrating in his hands? I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. Um, you can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment. I believe our iTunes was down for a little bit last week, but it's now back up, I swear to you. Please go on iTunes uh, and give us, a, give us a comment or a review if you were thinking about doing it before. I consider it a personal favor. Um, it helps other people discover the podcast. Come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview. Uh, See article links and post your own comments there. Uh, recommend us, share us on social media. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you online, Scott? I am at Political Worldviews Partner, eaworldview.com, uh, the news and analysis website, or on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. And I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Facebook uh, with a picture of me in front of the Capitol building, uh, Adam Quinn 161, if you're counting. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that a lot less frequently. Go to Facebook. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England, who are also uh, our generous financial sponsors, and we very much appreciate their help and support. Thank you very much to them. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.